I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. Inflation was a major issue when I first started studying economics in the 1970s. In fact, for many people, it was the major issue. Public opinion polls at that time identified inflation as people's biggest concern. Now, after more than four decades, during which inflation was low and stable, we are seeing the highest inflation rate in 40 years. Correspondingly, inflation has once again climbed to the top of the list of the public's concerns. Last month, the Pew Research Center reported that 7 in 10 Americans view inflation as a very big problem for the country, which is 15 percentage points higher than those who saw the affordability of health care or violent crime as a very big problem and almost 20 percentage points higher than those concerned about gun violence or the federal budget deficit. Why is inflation so high? What are the prospects for it coming down? What can be done? To answer these questions, I'm very pleased to welcome back to Econofact Chats, Karen Dynan, a professor of the practice in the Department of Economics at Harvard University. Karen is very well qualified to speak to these issues. She's a prolific and influential scholar and has had important high-level policy experience, having served as Assistant Secretary for Economic Policy and Chief Economist at the U.S. Department of the Treasury from 2014 to 2017, and before that, working as a staff economist for almost two decades at the Federal Reserve Board. Karen, welcome once again to Econofact Chats. Thanks, Michael. It's wonderful to be here. It's great to have you on again. Karen, what's happening with inflation in the United States, and how does this compare to what's been going on in other advanced countries? Yeah, so over the past year, inflation in the United States has climbed to very high levels, as you noted, the highest in 40 years. According to last Friday's Consumer Price Index report, Overall, consumer prices in May were 8.5% above where they were in May 2021, and core inflation, that's inflation excluding food and energy, uh, was 6% on a 12-month basis. And we are seeing um, fairly similar patterns in many other advanced economies. For example, consumer inflation is almost as high in Europe and in the United Kingdom as it is in the United States. We are even seeing rising inflation in Japan, where the level is still much lower than in the United States and Europe, but it's a striking development because Japan has struggled with low inflation for so long. So struggled with low inflation, people now might not think that low inflation is a problem, but in an Econofact memo that I published, I explained why that is, although that memo, I guess, will have to be updated now, um, or I'll just rewrite it in Japanese or something like that. Karen, inflation is defined as a rise in a price index, something that's supposed to capture prices throughout the economy. 
But if inflation was just adding an 8% increase to the price of food, the price of gas, rents, and wages and salaries, then it shouldn't really matter that much. It's just what economists call a nominal change. And in terms of hours worked, people are not paying more for things. But this isn't the case, and inflation is clearly something that is very unpopular. Why is that? Yes, when people are asked why they don't like inflation, the first thing they typically mention is that it reduces their purchasing power, that the dollars that they that they earn every month just don't don't go as far because prices are higher. So is this just a case of thinking about pay increases or not thinking about pay increases due to inflation, but focusing on the cost of things that I'm purchasing instead? Um, well, it, it is the case that over longer periods of time, for example, over periods of maybe two or three or four years, wages and salaries tend to track price inflation. So people come out okay, but this is not the case often over shorter periods um, when inflation particularly is, is rising unexpectedly. Um, so for example, various broad measures of wage growth right now show that earnings on the whole haven't kept up with inflation over the past year. In um, some industries where worker shortages have been particularly acute, like in the leisure and hospitality industry and in the retail trade sector, wages have risen faster than prices. But even in those categories, we're seeing some signs of slowing wages, even though price inflation isn't slowing. So that's a, that's a concern for people. The other thing about high inflation, uh, if it's not expected, is that it can cause an um, arbitrary redistribution of purchasing power for people who are in longer term contracts. So you see this with workers on multi-year wage contracts when they end up getting paid in dollars that have uh, less purchasing power than they expected at the time of when they negotiated their contracts. Uh, you see this with loans too. High inflation um, can be great for, for borrowers, and this was true for people who bought um, homes in the 1970s because after we had inflation rise in the late 70s and early 80s, those borrowers got to pay back the loans in dollars that were worth less than, than they thought they would be. Um, but it hurts the lenders who thought they'd get more real purchasing power back. So you're describing inflation that has very different effects across the economy. Who tends to be hurt the most by inflation? Well, it depends on what else is going on in the economy. But I would say in general, high inflation is hardest on low income households. Um, so, so low income households, they're less likely to own homes and other types of assets that are hedges against inflation. Uh, for example, given the rise in home prices over the pandemic period, implicit rent for homeowners has risen a lot, but those homeowners also own an asset that has a much higher price. So that's helped kind of offset uh, the rise in implicit rent. But if you don't know, own a home, then you've just been stuck with higher rent. Um, I would also say that lower income households uh, typically have less uh, financial reserves to insulate them from unexpected inflation. For example, it's, it's a big deal right now for anyone who needs a, a car to get to work that gas prices 
are twice as high as they were a year ago. If you have extra money in your bank account, you can dip into that money to fund your gas. But if you don't have those kinds of reserves, you might have to cut back on some other form of important spending. So earlier you mentioned core inflation, which is inflation stripping out the rise in the price of food and fuels. And the price of food and fuels has risen faster than other prices. I imagine low-income houses are also hurt by the fact that they spend a bigger proportion of their budget on food and fuels than richer households. Uh, yes, that is um, certainly true. And uh, with food and fuels um, kind of rising, particularly right now, at a much uh, at a higher pace than even the, the rest of other goods and services, it has been, uh, I think, felt particularly uh, sharply by lower income households. So that's the effects of inflation. Karen, how did we get to today's high inflation? Is it a situation of bad luck or is it a situation of bad policy or is it some combination of the two? Um, I would certainly say bad luck. And um, I would say there's a role for policy, although it's complicated as to whether you want to say bad policy, because some of the policies that boost inflation have had other types of benefits. But anyway, the, the, the first piece of the story, and this is the component that's most related to policy, is strong consumer demand, with the story being that um, people saved a lot during the early part of the pandemic. So even, so we ha- even though we had this massive job loss in 2020, incomes really held up across the income distribution for lower income households and higher income households because we had these generous government support policies that replaced income. Um, And at the same time, we had consumption that was constrained, uh, particularly in 2020, by people not wanting to engage in activities that might expose them to the virus. Uh, So so by the end of 2020, people had um, accumulated uh, kind of larger than usual amounts of saving. Uh, which for people lower in the income distribution who tend to not save very much uh, really could make a big difference. Um, but then you get to early 2021, and um, finally kind of people were getting vaccinated in large numbers, um, and people were ready to get out there and spend and make up for lost ground. So we had this strong consumer demand, which is, which is still with us today, uh, putting upward pressure on prices. So economists are trained to think about demand and supply. Sometimes people say we're trained to think about very little else than demand and supply. But demand, I imagine, is only one part of the story. Supply also matters, especially in the area of in the era of COVID, right? Yeah. So supply constraints have also been a very important part of the story. And in fact, failure to anticipate the size and persistence of those constraints helps explain why monetary policy didn't act sooner to address inflation. But um, basically, it turned out that one can't restart a giant, complicated economic machine overnight. Uh, And uh, you've probably seen Pictures of ships stacked up at West Coast, West Coast ports last fall because ports had limited capacity to bring in all the goods that were being demanded. 
If you've tried to buy a new car, you know that automakers have not been able to make as many cars as they have wanted to because they haven't had enough semiconductors. You may have heard um, scary stories about medical devices that can't be completed because there's one critical part from Asia that's still missing. Um, So these are all types of bottlenecks and supply chain issues. And they matter because um, it has meant that supply hasn't been able to, to, to rise to meet this strong demand, which has put more upward pressure on prices. Um, the, the other thing I should mention on the supply side uh, is the worker shortages. So when the economy was, was heating up in the late 2010s, a, an important reason we didn't see inflation rise was that the economy was able to ramp up production um, with a, with just a, a modest increase in wages, because that was enough to bring people back into the labor force. And in 2021, I think policymakers were surprised by the reluctance of people who had been laid off during the pandemic to come back into the labor force uh, for reasons that we still don't entirely um, understand, whether it's fears of the virus, trouble getting childcare, or people taking time out uh, because they have the money to fund it. Uh, but this worker shortage, shortage has basically um, exacerbated the effects of the supply chain issues and and the other types of bottlenecks. I think the issue of labor market is really important here. Um, Somebody we both know, Julia Coronado, was on television recently, and the interviewer asked, why is the economy doing so poorly? And she said, well, unemployment is very low. And so while people are really focused on inflation, it is striking that unemployment is, what, 3.6% or so in its most recent report. So in this period of very high inflation, we also have low unemployment. Karen, going back to um, the fact that different prices rise at different rates, supply and demand shocks of the past few years have meant very different rates of inflation across categories of goods and services. And you alluded to some of that before. Are we seeing inflation becoming more broad-based now? Yes, we are seeing inflation becoming more broad-based. Initially, the upward pressure on prices was was concentrated uh, in goods uh, because there was a a lingering reluctance to consume high-contact services. And and that meant that, that people were instead uh, concentrating their spending on, on goods. And this created these pockets of acute pressure in terms of supply demand imbalances, um, you know, particularly because of the supply chain problems that were constraining production or delivery. But um, that was early uh, in, in, the, um, in, in the period of rising inflation. One of the, the most concerning developments over the past uh kind of nine months or so, is that inflation has gotten much, much broader. It's gone, gone beyond these certain categories that we can tell special stories about in terms of demand and supply. So one way to gauge underlying inflation, broader inflation, is to look at measures that strip out the big increases uh, where you think special factors are probably at play. So for example, the Dallas Fed publishes a series called Trimmed Mean Inflation. And that series, it didn't do much over the summer of 2021 when broader inflation was being pushed up by these special factors, 
But this series then took off in the fall of 2021 and is now at its highest level in three decades. So trim mean inflation, I guess they don't really want to use the acronym TMI because that has another <laughs> meaning. So, uh, maybe they want to think of a different name. So I said economists think about demand and supply, and that's about all. But infl- for inflation, we know there's another really important variable, and that is people's expectations. The um, If people expect inflation to be higher, that can become a self-fulfilling prophecy because it asks for higher wages, which feeds into higher prices, which causes people to ask for higher wages and so on. Is this currently something to worry about? Yes, it's something we should be keeping an eye on. Inflation expectations do appear to have an important influence on wage and price setting, as as one would expect. And people have um, taken comfort in the fact that long-term inflation expectations, so what people expect over the next five or 10 years, they haven't risen that much. And even at their somewhat higher values now, they aren't notably out of the range that we've seen over the last 20 years or so. But I think that view is um, probably too optimistic for several reasons. The first is that expected inflation over shorter horizons has moved up much more. So for example, the New York Fed's one-year measure of inflation expectations, how much people expect prices to rise over the next 12 months, that's now gone over 6%. The second reason for concern is that people in businesses, they aren't just forward-looking when they think about what wage and price increases they'll need to keep up with broader inflation. They They look backward too, to what happened in the past. Um, Perhaps not so much when inflation was low and boring in the decades before the pandemic, but now you can't turn on the news in the morning without seeing some stories about how much prices are rising. So the fact that we've already seen a, a bunch of inflation, that is influencing the wages and prices that people are targeting now. And I would say that the third, um, reason for concern is that we are starting to see more action even in the longer term measures of inflation expectation. So um, last Friday, the Michigan survey measure of long-term inflation expectations uh, popped up by 0.3 percentage points, which doesn't sound like much, but it was a large movement by the, the historical standards of the series, um, which has made analysts um, start to worry that uh, this might be a signal that people are losing confidence in the Fed's ability to control inflation and that inflation expectations, once they become unanchored, could rise much more in coming months. So Karen, I'd like to ask you a bit about the policy response so far. Has your old employer, the Federal Reserve, been doing a good job? We hear some people saying that the Fed dropped the ball and other people saying that complaints are Monday morning quarterbacking, that at the height of the pandemic and the dislocations, the Fed acted appropriately, and it would have been irresponsible for them to start raising rates as early as some other people uh, requested. What do you think about that? Um, Well, the the Fed has started uh, raising 
interest rates, and they have put um, unconventional monetary policies, that's quantitative easing, which I'm sure you've talked about on past podcasts, they've put quantitative easing into reverse, um, with the goal of taking the stance of monetary policy from being supportive of demand, where it still is now, to basically back to neutral, um, and then beyond neutral, such that monetary policy is actually in, in tight territory and it's weighing on demand and therefore correcting the imbalance between supply and demand. Those are certainly steps in the right direction. The other important thing the Fed needs to do is to maintain the credibility of it, the institution. The public needs to know that the Fed is on top of the situation and committed to bringing inflation back to acceptable levels in order to keep inflation expectations, as we just talked about, uh, in check. Um, And this is where I come to your question about whether the Fed uh, misstepped or not. Um, Yes, I I think uh, most people believe they were behind the curve in 2021, and they have acknowledged in hindsight that um, they were behind the curve. And I think recognizing that misstep is important to maintaining credibility. Uh, Chair Powell has uh, also telegraphed that they are going to be nimble and humble going forward. And I think that will help as well. So humility is always good, I imagine. Um, So, so far I've asked you relatively easy questions. I'm going to end with an unfair hard question. Karen, what are the prospects for the Fed to engineer a reduction in inflation without cratering the economy? You knew it was coming. <laughs> I think it is It is a hard question. Um, I think we're, we're all looking for um, a soft landing. Uh, that's uh, where economic, slow, economic growth slows, but we don't actually s- slip backwards in terms of growth. We don't actually go into a recession. And um, that's that weakening of, of demand is enough to bring inflation gradually back to target. And um, I think that's certainly a possible outcome, um, but we can't we, we really can't be certain. Um, on the, the good news is that economic activity does seem to be cooling. For example, we saw in the last labor market report uh, that job growth seemed to be abating somewhat. Uh, we can see that housing demand is starting to be curbed by higher mortgage interest rates. Uh, so that's that's the good news. We need to recognize, though, that it's a, a long journey back to 2% inflation from where we are now. So there's certainly a role for tighter monetary policy. And at this point, we don't know how much tighter monetary policy is going to have to be in order to curb inflation, we just don't know if it's going to take a recession to sufficiently um, reduce inflation. So, you know, at this point, I think the odds of recession, they're certainly elevated above kind of the normal risk of inflation. Um, but But I think it's also important to keep in mind that going into recession does not uh, necessarily mean unemployment nearing the double digit range that we saw in the early 1980s when the Fed uh, sharply tightened in order to bring inflation down. I I think given the underlying health of the U.S. economy, we talked about kind of the savings that people have. um, I think given that uh, kind of underlying health, 
I would expect any recession to be mild and short-lived. Well, from your mouth to God's ear, as they say. <laughs> Thank you once again for joining me on Account of Fact Chats to talk about what has become one of the central economic and political issues of the day. And I always learn a lot from our conversations, Karen. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.